0: Love Talk Radio. At the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm happy to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, and I do see guests in the chat room, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Tonight's show will focus on Thomas Elsie Polk Sr., the Buffalo Soldier, with special guest and descendant Erwin Polk. History has always been a favorite subject for Irwin, and his genealogy research made it possible for him to be interviewed on the Today Show 23 years ago by Brian Gumbel. Irwin has regularly spoken at schools and to youth groups on Buffalo Soldiers' genealogy as well as rock and mineral collecting. Irwin is a member of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society Baltimore Chapter and a former board of governor for the Delaware Genealogical Society. Irwin is a member of the Thomas Elsie Polk Sr. Salisbury, Maryland Chapter of the 9th and 10th Horse Calvary Association of Buffalo Soldiers. So let me give a warm welcome to Erwin Polk to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Erwin.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Well, Well, I am certainly looking forward to Listening to you tell the story tonight, you know, I was telling you we talk so much about research and genealogy, but there's always a story that comes out of that digging. Wouldn't you say that?
1: Yes, I would, yes. There is always a story, and a good genealogist always has a story to tell,
0: That's right. So, Erwin, before we go into the story about your ancestor, why don't you give us just some basic information on the Buffalo Soldiers so that everyone could really understand just who they are.
1: Okay. Um, Well, Buffalo Soldiers um, began after the Civil War ended. The Civil War ended in 1865, and in July of 1866, the United States Congress voted on Bill Number 138 to allow blacks to join the U.S. Army. Uh, those troopers, both, both infantry and cavalry, were sent to the Indian Territory of the American West. Uh, the Native Americans gave and named the black soldiers, uh Buffalo soldiers because with their hair growing long, they're wearing buffalo hide coats, uh, they look like buffaloes. Dark skin face, it for the Indian it was uh something that they hadn't seen before and um that's what they look like. They also were very uh It was a badge of honor, so to speak, because the Indian regarded the buffalo as one of the great animals of the Western Plains. And being a buffalo soldier to the Indian meant you had a tenacious battle, um, which the buffalo soldiers would often prove in battle, that they were tenacious fighters. And they were uh, strong, and that's how they... Uh, got their name as to being buffalo so the nickname buffalo soldiers the buffalo soldiers as i indicated started out with infantry and cavalry there were four infantry units regiments uh organized and that was later in 1868 dropped down to about two infantry units and those were the 24th and 25th infantry the cavalry units began as 9th regiment and 10th regiment the 9th regiment began in uh louisiana the 10th regiment cavalry began in uh leavenworth kansas and those two units made up 20% of all the cavalry forces in the west there were also um scout units which uh, Native Americans were allowed to uh, be a part of, and they helped uh, to find other uh, warring Native Americans and helped with uh, road searching and mapping. Uh, The Buffalo Soldiers were not always charging into battle. Uh, Their primary duties were to protect the towns and settlers, Uh, peaceful Indians, could count on them for protection. Wagon trains and stagecoaches. Uh, there is a picture which Wells Fargo Bank has in their archives of a stagecoach with a complement of about seven or eight uh, infantrymen sitting upon the uh, top of the stagecoach, guarding the stagecoach as it went through what might have been hostile territory. Uh, They learned to build roads. Uh, The 9th Cavalry in um, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, had to build their own uh, uh, barracks as to, you know, a place for them to live. They put up telegraph lines, and they found watering holes. And they did all of this for a mere $13 a month. Their equipment tended to be a little bit outdated in comparison to their white counterparts. Uh, Their horses were usually the horses that the white soldiers had already rode for several years and were giving up as um, (laughs) they needed to be retired. So they got retired in the Buffalo Soldier Unit. And yet the Buffalo Soldiers had an outstanding battle record. Uh, They would often face uh, Native American uh, Indians who were at battle with them that had greater numbers than their own, something like uh, there'd be 100 Native Americans and only 50, 60 Buffalo soldiers at any one particular time. Some of the uh, people who were asked to command the uh, Buffalo soldiers were people such as George Armstrong Custer. And I always, when giving a uh, public display of the situation that they were in, I would identify I am so glad he said no. He didn't want to be in command of black troops because he felt it was going to impede his ability to reach the rank of general again. But they did receive commanders such as uh, Hatch and Grierson, and those two created the 9th and 10th Cavalry and built the cavalry from scratch to a very fine and very well-organized fighting unit. The Buffalo Soldiers tended to have a lower degree of uh, people running away. You know, when you need the words, they're never really there sometimes. Or is that because I'm getting older? But um, they tended to have a good record as far as maintaining their unit numbers. They had... um, In the 10th Cavalry one year, they only had 10 people deserting. That's the word I was looking for. They only had 10 deserters where their white counterparts would have over 100 per regiment. The Buffalo Soldiers had engagements with uh, Indian chiefs or Native American chiefs, depending on how you want to uh, look at it such as Victorio, Nana, and Geronimo. The 10th Cavalry Company K chased Geronimo twice. The first time they were pinned down and Geronimo was able to escape from them in 1885, but four months later they were able to get him to surrender and brought him to justice. And I guess they had some sort of trial for him. Uh, there was another gentleman, John J. Pershing, who was the commander of the American troops during World War One. He was in the 10th Cavalry and took his soldiers into Mexico to chase Pancho Villa, the Mexican bandit. And he also went with his 10th Cavalry to Cuba during the Spanish-American War in 1898, where the Rough Riders and Teddy Roosevelt would not have made it up San Juan Hill if the Buffalo Soldiers of the combined 9th and 10th Cavalry had not been fighting on his left flank. But when Teddy Roosevelt came home from the war and soon became President of the United States, he kind of identified that the Buffalo Soldiers really weren't that important to the victory that he had secured through for his men. Even though there were towns where uh, the Buffalo Soldiers had taken control of, were told because they were black, you didn't take this town, get out, and the white troops came in and it was listed as a victory for the white troops. There were 20 black men who, during the 1800s, attempted to go to West Point. Only three graduated during the 1800s, and all three of those would become commanding officers in the Buffalo Soldier Regiments. The first was Lieutenant Henry O. Flipper, class of 1877. They gave him some trumped-up charges to get him out of his position. And it was found out that he did not steal the money that he was accused of, but because of some attitude issue, they made him resign um, conduct on becoming an officer. Lieutenant John Hanks Anderson, class of 1887. And as you can see, it took 10 years between graduations for another black man to show up. He was in the 9th Cavalry, and Lieutenant Colonel Charles Young, class of 1889, was a commander of the 10th Cavalry, and he reached the highest rank, that being Lieutenant Colonel of the uh, Buffalo Soldiers during the 1800s. And he was also identified as the person who discovered Benjamin O. Davis, Sr., who was a sergeant in the 9th Cavalry, and encouraged him to go to school and get his degree and go to officer candidate school so that he could end up becoming the first black general in the United States Army. And that's my little synopsis of Buffalo Soldiers.
0: Well, it is a, a wonderful synopsis, and, and one of which I hope the listeners will continue to study uh, the information that's available on the, the Buffalo Soldiers. I have a comment coming out of the chat uh, by Angela Walton Raji stating that it's amazing how poorly they were treated. Yet we didn't have, you didn't, as you mentioned, a lot of deserters. So you are speaking of individuals that were committed and they were very brave and they worked under very uh, difficult uh, conditions. But they were there yes. and they did what they needed to do.
1: Yes. They, they. well, it was kind of a situation where, um, and I've, in the several books that I have read about this topic of Buffalo Soldiers, uh, they had indicated that you're working in a farm area. Uh, you One may not have been able to find a job after the Civil War had ended, and $13 a month was probably more money than most people were able to make working mm-hmm. the farms. So it made it mm-hmm. easy for them to transition into that Plus, they were used to working hard.
0: Right. Well, there's a question coming out of the chat. Are the pension files of the Buffalo Soldiers easily obtained? From Um, the National Archives, you know we can get the U.S. Colored Troop pension files, but have you had uh, difficulty getting files on the Buffalo Soldiers?
1: I will say that my little sister is diligent and did obtain such documents for us, because uh, my father did indicate that his grandfather did earn a pension and bought uh, a couple vehicles back in the 1930s and forty. Well, he died in 1940, so during the 1930s, he bought a couple used automobiles with his pension. But, yes, my sister was able to get that, and it's Ancestry.com. I think i pulled it up a couple times because I, I – What I had, I was able to see on Ancestry later on uh, with the advancements they have. The the trick is to know the name of the soldier you're looking for, and things just pop up. We have a lot of information about Thomas. Um, I have his uh, enlistment papers from 1882, Uh, and declaration of recruit, uh, consent in case of minor, which he didn't have to fill out, the register of enlistments for the state of Maryland where he um, enlisted, his 1887 enlistment papers, and all the documents from there, plus... um, Somebody wrote something in um, by hand, but it does identify that he was a member of the United States Cavalry. Uh, statement of service reference slip. So that would probably be what they used to identify that he was eligible for a pension.
0: Right. And we have a guest in the chat room. And uh, it's Jones, uh, 98, and Jones is stating, I have an ancestor that was in the 9th Calvary Company, L, from 1872 to 1877 during the time of Custer. And uh, we also see that Jones states, I have his pension file. So I'm glad to see that we have someone in the chat room that has uh, also a family member that was in the Ninth Calvary. So why don't you take us through your story, the story of Thomas Elsie Polk. Okay. Senior.
1: Yes. (laughs) Um, With any good story, you have to start with a beginning and – Without parents, Thomas wouldn't have been here. Uh, Without grandparents, Thomas wouldn't have been here either. Thomas's father was a James Morris Polk. James was born in 1808. Typically, they called him Morris. um, The slave owner that owned him was a Nancy Morris, so that's how he uh, got his middle name. Uh, In 1809, Morris... His older sister Sarah and his mother Mary were freed by the will of this Nancy Morris. Uh, Nancy wrote her will in January of 1809, and by March of 1809, no, I'm sorry, by April of 1809, her will was registered, which a register of will in uh, Wicomico County or Somerset County indicated that you can't. Register a will until the person has died. So uh, that indicated that she died somewhere between January and April of 1809. And freeing her slaves was one of the very first things. I was very surprised in reading this will because uh, that was one of the first things she identified she wanted to do. It wasn't a matter of leaving her documents or papers and, and personal belongings to her family members. It was, I want these slaves freed. Okay, so his
0: parents were freed. So they were were manumitted.
1: Uh His father was, yes. His mother, on the other hand, is a Rebecca Caroline Black Polk. Uh, She was born around 1836. To my knowledge, and I've been able to confer with a cousin of mine who does a lot more extensive research on the black family, Kelly Black, um, Rebecca Caroline Black, her father, George, and her grandfather, William, were all free. And I did find William listed in the 1820 census as the head of the household for his particular household. and. You don't get in the census unless you're free. So that indica- that proves he was a free man at that particular time. And what um, time was that? That was
0: 1820,
1: the 1820, 1820 census.
0: Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. And Rebecca and Morris ended up getting married in March of 1856, and that, there are documents that I have of them registering uh, for a marriage license on, I believe it's March 11th, 1856. As a child, Thomas was born June 11th, 1860. He was the third child born to his parents, Rebecca and Morris, and he is the, their eldest son. So he had two older sisters and uh, well, it, there's total of six boys and four girls born to this family because they had ten children all total. That was ten that lived. It is identified that they supposedly had 15 uh, children born. Before I go any further, I have to say a couple things in terms of without the assistance, the work that came before me, None of this would have taken place. Uh, there is a cousin, Condra Wilfred Williams, who began the research on the Polk family in 1934, I believe. And my aunt, Velmer Morris, uh, my father's youngest sister, put Condra's research work and got the family to uh, to give information about their respective families so that she could put it in outline form and created a family history book for us, which came out in 1976-1977. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. Without those two, I would never have gotten where I am. Nor would I have ended up on the Today Show because it worked me into the idea I need to read my mother's family history. Thomas's brothers were Ishmael, John, Henry, Perry and James, and the four girls were Lucinda, Arianna, Martha and Sarah. They were all raised in a farming village known as Allen, uh which is just outside of Salisbury, between the Princess Anne and Salisbury are the two largest uh, towns in that area uh, at the time it was Somerset County uh, by 1867 I believe it changed over and became Wicomico County not a Merlin resident so I don't really have that totally down but I think I'm, my my dates and times are about accurate Thomas was not an educated individual Um. There's, in fact, what I've seen is schools were not required for the African Americans until about 1870. Some of them may have gotten gotten an education, but it wasn't a requirement. And being poor, farming individuals, um, it wasn't important. For Thomas, he had to get out and work. He became a sailor according to the 1880 census, and he would have been 20 years old at that time since he was born in 1860. He, in 1900 census, was also listed as being a sailor, which identified that he had stopped which would have been to become a Buffalo soldier, and then he went back and I often tell people he didn't exactly know what he wanted to do when he grew up. Couldn't figure out whether he wanted to be on land or on sea. <laughs> his military career started in March, on March 2nd, 1882. As I indicated, I have a copy of his enlistment papers. And he enlisted in the U.S. Army, 9th Cavalry Regiment. He would have been assigned to Company C. And at the time of his enlistment, he had to make an X for his name, which goes along with not being educated. Uh, This particular enlistment ended March 1st, 1887. During that enlistment period, though, we do have two letters which Thomas wrote to his father. And uh, the first one, I believe, would have been written in 1883 and the second one in 1885. The letter written in 1883 was signed by someone else uh, writing for Thomas. So Thomas, by 1883, did not have the ability to read and write on his own. And I have to admit, the two gentlemen together still would have lost the spelling bee to most current-day elementary students. But... uh,
0: well you know I'm curious what, what what did he write? What did he what was the letter about?
1: A simply it was a simple um how are you? I am fine, if anybody's asking for me, I am over here in the Indian territory and it was just that simple. He also got a little upset about the fact that his uh sister Lucinda who was married to a gentleman from Baltimore, uh, William Burke, with an E at the end. And he was very happy, actually, that she finally figured out that she needed to leave him because he was no account anyway.
0: <laughs> okay. But, so he put that in the letter.
1: Oh, yes. That, that, that <laughs> was in the letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they lived... In Baltimore City, uh, on Dallas Street, yes. I saw them in the, like the 1880 census. That's where they were. And by 1885, she and that uh, William Burke had already split up, and um, she was, I believe, back in Salisbury. But I, I haven't found her since. But I'm still looking. His enlistment ended in March first, eighteen eighty seven. Somehow, some way, he had the great idea to go back and re-enlist in, on September sixth, eighteen eighty seven But this time he had to get permission from the adjutant general's office because he was a married man, and apparently, they weren't allowing soldiers to enlist unless they were single. Without permission from the Adjutant General's office, so he had to go through that process to get there and get himself back in the military and We believe that he took his wife with him because their first child was born in Kansas, which is where he came out at the very at his very last time in eighteen ninety two And, yes, that enlistment and military career ended September 5th of 1892. Uh, During the time that he was in the Army, he did learn how to read and write, uh, because his enlistment papers for 1887, he signed his own name. And there was no X, and there was no initialing by an officer either above or below his name. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, during his enlistment, he reached the rank of sergeant each time, each time he went in, he would be a private, go up to sergeant and stay at that level. Um, and to reach the rank of sergeant, I've heard you had to be able to read and write because there were reports you had to complete. And in order to be hold that rank, you got to be able to complete the report So it was necessary for him to um, be able to read and write, which he had a rudimentary reading and writing ability. Uh, He was given charge of property of the other troops. His ability to shoot a rifle was at the marksman level, and his most obvious duty was as cook, which is something he brought home with him and taught his son, my grandfather, how to cook and bake cakes. Thomas was married in March of 1887 to Alice Elizabeth King of also Allen Merlin, and Alice died in January of 1910, but they had five children, a Viola, Lila, Ulysses, my grandfather, Winifred and Winfred whose middle name is Bisil and they always called him Bisil during the time that he was alive but young Bisiel, uh died in October of 1904 he was a young boy and so that left his twin sister and the older three kids to mourn his death Thomas's second wife was Hattie Boone and she was of Trap Merlin which is not too far from the uh, Chesapeake Bay Bridge and they got married December of 1914 Thomas and Hattie had three children Celestine, Thomas Jr. and Everett as well, a man right there, you
0: know what I want to do I want to yes. stop you right here. We're going to take a quick break and then come cool. back and you tell us more about Thomas the man. I mean, you've given okay. us an idea of Thomas's beginnings. And so let we we'll come back and and listen to what you have to tell us about Thomas uh after his career as a buffalo soldier. So this is okay. just a quick break, okay? Okay. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Well, I have a quick commercial for you. Have you ordered your copy of Our Ancestors, Our Stories? This collaborative book offers insights into the African-American experience in Edgeville County, South Carolina, through the eyes of five very different authors. These family historians and storytellers have come together to share their stories, to inspire and encourage others, and to keep alive the memories of their ancestors. Order your copy today from www.thememorykeepers.net or from Amazon, and please read my story searching for my South Carolina kin. You have been listening to Irwin Pope share his research and family story about Thomas Elsie Pope Sr., a Buffalo Soldier, and just as we stop you were getting ready to tell us more about Thomas the Man. So please continue, Erwin, by sharing with us what you learned about your great-grandfather.
1: Thank you. Um, Well, I learned a a lot about my great-grandfather, and it was funny because my Aunt Velmer uh, had to find a picture of him for the history book that she put together, and she needed to confirm that the picture she had of this gentleman in a soldier's uniform was who she was thinking was Thomas Polk, so she ran to her uh, her aunt's husband, Ray Church, to confirm, and Ray was able to say without a doubt, that's Mr. Tom Polk.
0: And that's the so picture that's, that they're seeing that, right now Scroll across the screen
1: Yes And Thomas I learned from His son Everett Because his son Everett was only born in nineteen, Early 1920s uh, Like 1921-22 um, So I was able to talk to My Uncle Everett And get a Lot of information about his father, and he indicated his father was not a smoker or drinker. Um, many days in order to go shopping, he had to walk down what is originally known as Knights Road, which is now called Upper Ferry Road, uh, to get to the Wicomico River, one of the, um I guess the proper word is inlet or tributaries to the uh, Wicomico River and row into Salisbury, Maryland to do his shopping. And he would have to row in, do the shopping, and row back. And Thomas Jr. and young Everett were often taken with him uh, to help carry, I guess, the bags that he was Of food that he was bringing back, and they'd sit there, and he did all the rowing. And uh, according to Uncle Everett, he was well into his seventies doing all this. And it's a long walk to the Wicomico River from the house they lived in, and uh, the row probably was anywhere from six to ten miles. So, figure he's rowing about twenty miles. And would do this two, three times a week, according to my Uncle Everett. Uh, He was a quiet man and didn't have a lot of idle time. He always kept himself busy so that he had something to do at all times. And he used to talk often about his favorite Indian chief, Sitting Bull. Now, Sitting Bull had already died by the time he became a Buffalo soldier, but the idea was that was still his favorite Indian chief, and he talked about Sitting Bull all all the time. Religiously, I'm not going to say he was a highly religious man, but I think he got his start while in the military, else, uh, because it was the chaplain of the armies that helped to teach these illiterate soldiers how to read and write. They would preach to them on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, they held classes to help these young men learn to read and write. So yes, I will go back and forth into his military career, because that had an effect on his personal life afterwards. As I indicated in the 1900 census, he was listed I'm sorry to, Yeah, the 1900 census he was listed as a sailor again. So he went off to sea and probably by the time his he had married and got started with his second family, he had pretty much been a retired I'm just going to farm some land and do this and do that and live off my pensions and um kind of like retired from doing his adventure work. So the adventurer has kind of like taken a little seat and said, I'm going to enjoy life as it is. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He enjoyed providing for his family, doing carpentry work. He taught my grandfather to be a carpenter, which is one of the uh, professions my grandfather had when my father was growing up farming, and cooking for the family. Uh, Uncle Everett indicated that the night Thomas died, he fixed the family dinner and died in his sleep peacefully. But in May of 1898, now this point on is my speculation as to what may have happened. Because we have some items and we can't exactly identify this shotgun was not. We have a copy of a shotgun and a sword. Now, the sword we can pretty much identify that was military issue. But the shotgun is not a military issued item. And in May of 1898, there was a lynching of a Garfield King. Well, Thomas's first wife was an Alice King. And she was still alive, and she was pregnant with the two twins. And Garfield did something a little dumb. He got in a scuffle with a young white boy who was, uh, Garfield was 18, and this white boy was about 22. And the store owner told him to take it outside, and uh, somehow, some way, the white boy got shot. Didn't rush himself to the hospital, though, which is kind of like, Nobody was thinking correctly at that particular time, and he died. This took place on Saturday. Tuesday, he died. Well, Garfield was arrested and put in jail, but late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, there was a mob that got together and decided, we're not going to have any more blacks, killing white men so they broke into the jail took an axe to the cell where Garfield was in prison uh, they hit the one police officer that was on duty at that particular time took him out, took Garfield out, beat him up a little bit tried to hang him I think the rope broke said so he did it again and this time it stuck and then they left his body hanging as a shot roughly 50 to 75 bullets into his body. Well, the next day, that weekend, all the blacks from Allen, Merlin, came into town and purchased all the weapons they could get their hands on. Now, at that particular time, Thomas, in my opinion, would have been the prime person To lead this, organize this, one, he was a former soldier in the military. Two, he was, because he was a soldier in the military and held rank of sergeant, was accustomed to giving orders and instructing people on how to do things, he was a perfect candidate to organize this crew and go into town and buy these weapons so that they could protect themselves because they had heard the white residents of this mob were interested in coming to Allen and just destroying everybody and eliminating the black community of Allen, uh, hopefully without a fight. Well, they weren't going to go and do that without a fight. And um, my feeling is that Thomas was able to organize this crew. He bought a shotgun, and they were there and available. Fortunately, nothing happened, and nobody went to Allen that, at that particular time. And uh, law enforcement was able to get some control of the the region. But uh, this first lynching in Wicomico County may have been the crowning moment of Thomas's life where he had to take charge himself and lead people to defend his community, his family, his in-laws and so forth and so on.
0: And it and it's just remarkable that Thomas was able to do this and to prevent any more deaths in the community by helping to organize the, the people of the community to protect themselves.
1: Yes. it was. He was only six years out of the military. He was the only one that I have seen records, and I, I've looked to see if there was anyone else um, in the uh, Buffalo Soldiers or any military regiments that would have been from that particular area, and he's pretty much the only one I, I've seen, and he had the know-how. And the ability and the reasons for getting involved, as I said, his wife was pregnant. I believe the twins were born. this took place in May. The twins were born in July.
0: Mhm, so well, how does it feel i mean you you mentioned that you had a relative to uh gather a lot of information and to create this family book but how does it feel to to know that you have this historical information about your great-grandfather and also that there's an association that's named after your uh, great-grandfather, Thomas Elsie Polk, Sr., Salisbury, Maryland, chapter of the Ninth and Tenth Horse Calvary Association?
1: Well, that I will say my Aunt Velmer, and my Uncle Everett were the driving force in uh, getting that started. I was a latecomer to joining that organization because, I, one, I was a little bit too far away living in uh, Delaware, and then trying to make meetings in Maryland was just kind of like, I can't do this. But my parents joined, and they were also part of the uh Charter group of people. I think my aunt was able to convince all of her siblings, uh, the five that were well, there were four others that she had to convince to join, and um, it's a proud thing. It's a proud thing because you can, um, when you're talking to people, knowing this information, and I was I was just telling some people the other day how. I can go to various groups, and uh, sit. I was at Christmas dinners several years back, and I just started talking about this is what I do for pastime. I'm taking the information that my Aunt Velmer had initially collected, and I'm trying to take it back further. I've... I've been fortunate because I was able to go back as far as 1778 um, and finding um, information about the polks, the black polks, uh that I was uh, descended from. Um, I think by 1850, uh, Thomas's grandfather had gotten his freedom, and so, by eighteen fifty, my family had my Polk family had pretty much been freed from slavery,
0: so I have
1: something to be proud of uh this past in two thousand nine our family held a uh celebration of and family reunion of the fact that we had been freed for two hundred years. Most black people can't equate to that kind of time period. If they get 100, they're, they're happy. Um, now that the Civil War has been over, what, 150 years?
0: Right, um, yes.
1: The most anybody can do. Well, back in 2009, we were celebrating an even 200 years of freedom. And uh, what we did as a group, and again, my aunt Velmer, who was the driving force, Um, she reached out to each and every person to get as many people from the 10 children born to Morris and Rebecca to have them come to this reunion. And I think we were successful in getting at least representation from, uh, we didn't do the full 10, I think we were maybe three short, but we're looking at 70, 80% participation by the family, and it was over 150 people in attendance, and it was a wonderful thing. It was a beautiful thing.
0: Right, and it's just wonderful to hear that. I mean, even if you're saying seven of the line, you know, you said three were missing, but still, that's a large number of people to come together to share that 200-year history of, of freedom of your family. And, and it's just wonderful. And, and, you know, I'm just happy to, to know that you have the documentation, you have the family history book, and I hope others that are listening will also consider finding the story, writing the story, and telling the story. Uh, because what we've heard tonight is a story that began back in in seventeen hundred in the seventeen hundreds and where freedom took place, the emancipation and the fact that your ancestor uh was a sailor and he he enlisted twice and um uh, he also stood up for the community at a time where i'm sure there was great Coral and Sorrow, uh, with the lynching of your uh, family member. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat room. Do you have any information of the Buffalo Soldiers capturing Billy the Kid? And the, they say they believe it was in Nebraska.
1: That has been depicted on TV. Uh it was I believe the twenty fourth infantry surrounded the house that was put to fire um, several of Billy's uh gang were in that house. Billy escaped the house was surrounded supposedly by uh the infantry of the twenty fourth infantry That is something that uh easily found. Um, I will say there are several books the two that I tend to carry around kind of like I do my impression of Charlton Heston with the uh, Ten Commandments and I raise them one, one in each hand and they're big heavy they're not the kind of books you would tend to buy because they're, they were uh, reference books more so than anything else but uh on the trail of the buffalo soldier 1 and 2 by frank schubert and there are many many stories of the individuals um who were members of the buffalo soldiers uh he goes into uh the awards that they won the uh medal of honors the campaigns that some of them had to fight in and I just happened to get lucky one day, and I was reading about my great-grandfather. I said, he never went to the Philippines. And so I ended up sending him a letter. And he sent me a letter back saying, I am so sorry. You are right. Your great-grandfather did not go to the Philippines. Turns out, Thomas Polk is a common name. Uh, There were six Thomas Polks, in the Ninth Cavalry in a 20-year time period, and one of which was my great-grandfather. Most of the information in the first book about my great-grandfather is incorrect. Dr. Schubert rewrote and put together his second edition of that same book with all the corrections for many people, including my great-grandfather, and any information that he might have obtained uh, subsequent to the first book. And that is the most accurate, and it even identifies Thomas's children and everything uh, about his family that my sister and I were able to give to him. But that's a book that I would say, if you can go to your local library, if they have a copy, um, it's worth perusing for the information, because it will give you lots of different information about various people who were in the Buffalo Soldiers, uh, one of which is a gentleman by the name of Theophilus Gould Steward, Um I'm going to volunteer him as a one day another topic um that I might be able to put a little bit together for. But he is related to my mother. He and his older brother wrote about the community that they lived in, which is in Goultown, New Jersey, just outside of Bridgeton. And it was the book was called Goultown, a settlement of ancient date, a very remarkable settlement of ancient date. And He and my great-grandfather, Thomas, were at the same forts in Nebraska at Fort Robinson together. And the two of them I've heard start writing by making circles in the air and bringing the circle down onto the paper and continuing from there. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, taught my mother to write like that. So it's kind of like there's a coincidence here. It's possible my great grandfather was stationed with this gentleman, uh, this minister, The Alpha School steward, who also wrote the family history on my mother's family of Cooltail in nineteen thirteen.
0: Yes, right. And thank you so much. I I spoke to you uh about a month ago and you told me about Goldtown and I did look into the book and found connections to the Cuff family and the Pierce family and so thank you so much for recommending that book and I just have a comment coming out of the chat I and this is from uh TDM Brown I'm enjoying this program tonight. I see why Erwin's name sounded familiar to me. He is a distant DNA match for me. I'm getting a great local history lesson. My father is from Salisbury. Wow. So, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Well, I want to just thank you so much for coming on tonight, Irwin, and sharing uh this history lesson with us as well as your family story and do you have any closing remarks before we close out the show tonight
1: uh oh, thousands of them the hard part the, the the most important is do the research it is well worth it you may not have the time but if you take an hour a day on one weekend what i used to do The best time for me to do my genealogical research, on my birthday, I went off, I left, and went away, and I would go to the National Archives, to Philadelphia, to Baltimore, to uh, Princess Anne Merlin, and I would do my research, and that was the most beneficial thing that I've ever done. Do the research. It's well worth it. Make the time.
0: Make the time. Okay, everyone, make the time. So I just want to say thank you so much. Uh, Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining the show. And remember, everybody, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and Beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio Show. This show is sponsored by your host, me, hey, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And if you're interested in having any records pulled from the National Archives, please give me a call. My website is www.geniebroots.com and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Vernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Irvin.
1: Good night. Thank you.